So um, on my phone, on the camera setting on my phone, one of the options is portrait mode. How many of y'all know what I'm, you know what that is? Portrait mode, right? Okay. For those of you that don't, maybe you don't, you don't take pictures with your, you remember back in the days, if you went to church back in the day, when we would do family portraits and they would bring the photographer in and everybody would get put on their Sunday best. So as a kid that had to wear a tie and a coat to church on Sundays, this was extra torture because it wasn't even Sunday and I had to put on a coat and tie. So it was painful for me, but we, a family would come together and we do family portraits. So the whole idea of portraits is that there is a very obvious main thing of the picture, and that is front and center in a portrait. And in portrait mode on the phone, um, when you use that, like if you're taking a, a picture of a family member or a friend or, or a grandchild or whatever, you, you hit portrait mode, and what it does is it digitally mimics the settings on a regular camera that will, will create more depth to the picture. And so the effect of that is basically it makes the subject of the portrait pop. Okay? And, the, and the way they do this, they, it, it figures out what's the background, and it's slightly out of focus, and then the subject is very sharp, and so it just pops, and you, it's very clear. It makes it more dramatic. It makes, and it puts all the focus on the, the subject that is in the portrait. Well, today, Matthew does that literarily. He gives us four portraits of Jesus in chapter 11 of Matthew, which is where we're going to be. And in those four portraits, we learn different things. We see Jesus from different angles. So it's like uh, four different portraits um, of him that all do one thing. They do many things. But today, we're going to focus on one thing that they do. And that is that they help us trust him and overcome fear, doubt, and burden. Okay? Fear, doubt, and burdens. Okay? Now, um, some of you don't have any fears, some of you never doubt, and some of you are not burdened by anything. So if that's you, then you don't need to stay. You can just go, and, and we will applaud as you leave because you are in the minority. Because the rest of us have at least one. Um, some of us have all three that we struggle with in our walk with Christ. Okay, I'm not ashamed of that. Um, I'm not thrilled by that, and it makes life hard. Um, but God has given us what we need to overcome our fears, our doubts, and the burdens in life that we experience. So here's the thing that really kind of gets at it. The subject of each of those four portraits is Jesus. And the answer is go to him. In fact, he'll say at the end of this chapter, come to me. So we'll end there. Let's start with chapter 11, verse 1, which really is a transition statement from last week. Remember, last week in chapter 10, Jesus sent out the 12. He said, go, teach, and point to the kingdom of God through your preaching, your teaching, and your miracles. And so he sent them out to do miracles. And then he, it says in verse 1, he goes and does the same thing by himself to other villages, other towns. So starting in verse 11, the book of Matthew is written by Matthew, one of the 12 disciples, also called apostles later in their ministry because they are sent ones. Disciple means learner, student, apprentice. Apostle means one sent with authority. Okay? And so they were done. So now Jesus is going to do this. So starting in verse 1, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the town's of Galilee. Galilee is a region north of the region called Judea, Judea, Judea. Both of them are stacked right along the Jordan River, and the Sea of Galilee touches both of those. And this is where Jesus' ministries really 
went from the north end of Galilee to the south end near Jerusalem, and he, he, moved, he made treks out. But most of his ministry happened within that small area, and he has turned the world upside down from there. Verse 2, when John who was in prison, John who? It's not John Wayne. It's not John the disciple. It's John the Baptist. Okay, and, and just in case you're wondering, he wasn't Baptist, but, you know, he, he did baptize, and which is where he gets his nickname, John the Baptizer. John, who was in prison, okay, he'd been arrested by King Herod because he talked about how terrible it was that he was trying to marry his brother's sister, his brother's wife. This is someone else's wife. You're not supposed to marry her. And so he gets in trouble and thrown in prison. So, you know, it matters what you say from a, from a pulpit or a, in the middle of the wilderness, apparently. So he's in prison, and he heard about the deeds of the Messiah. Okay? And he sent his disciples to ask him a question. Okay? And we know, because we're this far away from, we're 2,000 years after this, we know Jesus is the Messiah. Okay? It wasn't common knowledge back then, but John knew. He's the one that pointed to Jesus as he was coming and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then he baptizes Jesus, even though he doesn't want to, because Jesus says, I need to obey the law too, even though I don't need to be baptized. And so he does that. Okay, so here we have, he sent his disciples to ask him this question. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Okay. Now, why would John ask that if he knows he's the Messiah? Because he's afraid... He's doubting, and he's burdened. He's in prison for doing what God told him to do. And that can get confusing. Have you ever done something for the Lord and felt like you got punished for it or disciplined for it or God let bad things happen to you even though you did exactly what you knew the Lord wanted you to do? That's what he's feeling. And he's so confused because he's looking at what Jesus is doing. He's hearing, right? He's hearing people talk. The miracles and the preaching. But he's also hearing, and he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. He's, he's going to parties. And, of course, he's getting criticized by the religious leaders. But John's going, wait a minute. I thought you were, you were going to preach and lead us to free us from oppression, from Roman oppression, that you were going to lead us as a mighty leader and king. And, and see, so he had the same cultural assumptions that the religious leaders that were opposing Jesus had. And so he's confused, and he's starting to doubt. Are you really who I thought you were, cuz? Because they're cousins. Are you really who I thought you were? So he can't go. He's in prison, so he sends his disciples. John the Baptist had disciples. Peter and Andrew were two of his disciples, or at least Andrew, I'm think, I think it was just Andrew, it was one of his disciples, but he then followed Jesus, which is the right order of things. And um, so he sends his disciples and he says, ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Verse 4, Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And then he gives a beatitude. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So, so Jesus does something that's very smooth here. He, he, he answers the question, with, but he doesn't answer it with words. He answers it with, just go tell him what you're seeing. And then he lists what you're seeing for our benefit, Matthew does. And Jesus says these words. But what Jesus is doing when he says this is he's actually quoting the Old Testament. If you want to write these down and go look at them, I encourage you to. Isaiah 35, 
Isaiah 35, verses 3 through 6, and Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, say that the Messiah will do these things. And oh, by the way, that was written 700 years earlier. Okay? So don't tell me prophecy isn't impressive unless you go look at it, and then you can tell me. All right, and then he says this, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. In other words, those who would, in the midst of their doubt, this is an encouraging word, I think, to to John, those who are doubt and yet don't walk away. So so here, when I hear doubt, I, I used to... It used to be confusing to me. It sounded bad. So let me, let me see if I can differentiate between unbelief and doubt. Okay? Unbelief is saying, I d- unbelief in this context, unbelief about Jesus and who he said he is. Okay? Unbelief is saying, I don't believe that Jesus who he said he is, who he said he is. I don't believe he's doing what he said he's going to do. I don't believe that God is working through him. I don't believe that God is authoritative in my life. I don't believe that I need to orient my life around him. I don't believe he's going to judge me one day. That's unbelief. That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about doubt. Okay? That's just straight out, I don't believe, and I'm not living in a way that would hint that I am. Okay? Doubt is in the context of I believe, but I sometimes have my doubts about what I believe. You see the difference? So there are times when you and I doubt, do I, am I being fooled here? Um, or can I really believe in this way area of my life? You know, sometimes we have areas of our lives where we're, it's easy to believe. And then there are other areas of our life where we're like, ah, I'm not so sure I trust you with that. Or I believe that you'll come through for me here. And so we have doubts. And that's part of growing in your faith. Okay? All right? If, if we've talked about faith as like a muscle and that it needs to be exercised, well, when you think about exercising muscles, what do you do? You exercise the muscle, which weakens the muscle, so that it can heal back stronger than it was. Well, that weakening part is kind of like when I have faith, but I have moments of doubt. Now, I don't automatically come back stronger. It depends on how I respond to my doubts. Where do I go to strengthen and deal with my doubts? And the lesson of this chapter is go to Jesus. The lesson is look at the portraits of Jesus. Look at what he is like based on what Scripture tells us and shows us about him, and let that strengthen your faith. And, and that's really where the crisis of faith happens, right? It's, do I believe that Jesus is who he said he uh, is and he, that he's going to do all he's promised to do? Do I believe that? And if I do, it will strengthen my faith. And if I don't, then either I'm weakening in my faith or I didn't ever really have it. Okay? So, um, so this is what he says when he says when he's going down here. Now, um, the first portrait, and this is the portrait we're looking at right now, is he's the promised Messiah. So of our first four portraits, Jesus is the promised Messiah. So if you're taking notes, number one, promised Messiah. Okay? And Jesus is basically saying to John through Isaiah, I'm the one you sh- you're thinking I was. I'm the one that's been prophesied. I'm an answer to the prophecies. I am the Messiah. You are correct. You've got it. Okay? So be encouraged. You haven't been fooled. All right? So he continues. As John's disciples were leaving, now Jesus is going to turn, and he's still same same portrait. He's going to do a double. He's going to do double duty in this passage. He's going to start defending and really exalting John the Baptist. Watch this. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd. So the crowd heard the initial conversation. At least some of them did. And then now they're going to hear this because he turns and talks to them. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Because that's where John would go to preach. He would go to. He was in the wilderness. A reed swayed in the wind. 
In other words, somebody without backbone? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. That wasn't John. If you knew his wardrobe, you wouldn't want to wear it either. It was as scratchy as my kid clothes growing up and at church clothes. Verse 9, then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Okay, now we're getting warm. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is what the one who, about whom it is written. And then he quotes um, Malachi 3.1 when he says, I will send my messenger ahead of you and you who will prepare your way before you. Now I want you to hear that as if God is saying through Malachi to the Messiah, I will send my messenger ahead of you, I'm sorry, to Israel, who will prepare your way, Israel, before you. In other words, prepare your way for the coming Messiah. John's job was to basically herald the king is coming, the king is coming, which was something that heralds would do back in the day of kings, both this in these days as well as in the days that would follow in lots of nations and lots of cultural contexts. Verse 11, Truly I tell you, Jesus continues, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Okay, there's, here, there's a lot here. I can only touch on a couple of things. And honestly, I don't know some of this. I, don't, I haven't found a convincing explanation for some of this. But here's what I see. First of all, he says, there's no one that has come before John the Baptist that is greater than he. Okay? And and, in the context here, we're talking about his greatness as far as his opportunity to be not a prophet, but the prophet. The prophet who gets to announce the coming of the Messiah. Okay? That means he's he's considered greater in that respect than Abraham, than Moses, right? David, right? Daniel, Joseph, I mean, just go down the list of all the, you know, go to through the Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. He's greater. He's greater. He's greater. Why? Because of his connection to the Messiah. So see what's his exaltation is coming because of Jesus. Okay. And then he says, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, this one gives me a little bit of pause because there's a part of me that wants to say and believe that anyone who has trusted the Lord on either side of the cross is going to be in his presence, okay, and is part of the kingdom of God, okay? So they might have, we might have gotten there a little bit differently, but we all basically got there by grace through faith, okay? Abraham came to, he was considered righteous through his faith in the one that would come. He didn't know his name was Jesus. He didn't know, he just knew that God was going to provide somebody who would be a mediator. Job writes about this even before Abraham. And then we get um, all the way through um, until here, and nobody has ever heard the name of Jesus except for John the Baptist, nobody before him because he hasn't been born yet. But his work on the cross didn't just work for the people in the New Testament. It works backwards too. So there's, that's why I struggle with this because I'm like, wait a minute, how can we be greater? And I think this is, this is maybe just consider this uh, uh, my take instead of you know anything more significant than that. Perhaps it's because of where we are from, with respect to the cross. We can look back and we can see the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord. It makes more sense to us because it's more spelled out for us as opposed to those who preceded us. It's still, we're still saved by faith in Christ alone, whether we know his name or not. Okay? And you say, well, how did they know there was somebody that was going to do that? Genesis 3.15 tells us, that there will be a snake crusher who will crush the head of the serpent 
and end him. That's Genesis 3.15. And that is where we get the first mention of the Messiah and his role to save us from sin and death, shame and guilt, hell itself. Okay? So there's probably 40 other opinions on what that verse says and means. That's where I am today. Um, Just take it with a grain of salt. Okay. Now, um, Jesus is going to continue on this same vein. We're still on this portrait of the Messiah. That's the longest portrait. But what I want you to begin to see here is Jesus is talking about John the Baptist, but he's also talking about himself. So all this exaltation that you see him doing for John, he's saying, and those of you studying Hebrews will get this, he's the better John the Baptist. Okay? Just like he's the better Moses and he's the better priest, and he's the better sacrifice, and you name it, he's the better version of, because he is perfect in every way. All right, so let's keep going. So I think we're in verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven, which is another way of saying the kingdom of God, has been subjected to violence. You could translate that, has been forcefully advancing. And violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, so basically Jesus is saying, among other things, he's at least saying this. He's saying the kingdom of God has arrived with John the Baptist and me, and it has been hell on earth ever since. The battle is raging, roaring, and as a result, you can look around and see the battles. And, you know, John's in prison. I had to be, I was in the wilderness for 40 days and nights and had to face Satan face to face. The religious leaders are against us. The secular leaders are against us. People are having trouble believing, even though I'm right here doing the miracles. They're still having trouble believing. There's this violent spiritual battle that is going on. That is about the kingdom of God because it is here but not yet. Right? That's why we pray your kingdom come. And yet Jesus says the kingdom of God is near. They're both true. It's here but not fully here. And that is, he says, a spiritual violence is occurring. Okay, And angels and demons behind the veil are going at it all over the place. Okay, And Satan is not going to quit until he's chained. That battle rages today. This is what we mean when we say that we need to wake up. That we're in the middle of a war, and that war is not fought with missiles and guns and swords. It's fought on our knees because prayer is where those battles... Prayer is the only weapon we have that can cross that line to that, that place where those battles are occurring. And I just don't think we believe that because we don't live like we really believe that. And this is why we don't suit up spiritually with the armor of God and put it on because we're like, I don't need it. Life's fine. Everything's good, which means you're not in the battle and the enemy doesn't care because you're not doing anything. They're leaving you alone pretty much. Okay? That's why when you do enter the fray and you do things that are controversial in Christianity, but you're doing what the Lord is sending you, you you get opposition. It's because you're doing, and this enemy stirred up because you're doing that, okay? That doesn't mean that there's a demon around every corner and we don't need to be talking about Satan all the time. Let's not waste words, okay? But let's not ignore them as if they don't exist, all right? Our focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ because he will give us what we need to do what he's called us to do. Let's not forget that, okay? But there is a war. There is a battle. And then he, and he, he just says, I'm, you know, John's here in the spirit of Elijah, 
Elijah is one of two people that have ever gone home to be with the Lord without dying. Okay, Elijah and um, uh, another e, e name, Enoch. Enoch walked with God, Genesis 5.26. So um, he just kept on walking with God until he got home. I'm like, that's, that sounds good, Lord. If you want to do a third, I'm, I'm in. I'm in for that. Or if you just want to come back, then all of us get to go back that way, right? Um, or flying or something cool like that. All right, verse 16. Now he turns to the crowd and he starts to criticize the crowd. Okay, he's still portrait of promised Messiah. All right, verse 16, to what can I compare this generation? So it'd be kind of like if Jesus were standing here and he was talking to you and me. What can I compare this generation? And this is what he says about the, uh, the Jews in the day. They're like children sitting in the marketplaces calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, that's like a funeral tune, and you did not mourn. Now, he's criticizing their reactions to John the Baptist and to himself. And then he elaborates in 18 and 19. For John came neither eating nor drinking. He was, he was very much an ascetic. I mean, he didn't, he didn't, he, he lived as simply as you could live. <laughs> I mean, if you go live in the wilderness and eat what you can find, I mean, I just soon fast. And he probably did a lot of that. And uh, he didn't dress with comfortable clothing. He dressed with whatever he could kill and find. And he was, and, and he did all that so that he had a better. It was, helped him be faithful to the Lord. Okay, the wilderness experience, if you will. And then it describes the Lord. Um, they say uh, so. John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. And then it says the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So it's like. Um, it doesn't matter if I party with the sinners or if I uh, separate myself from everyone. You're going to criticize. You're not going to believe. That's basically what he's saying to that generation. Okay? And it's not really any different today. We're the exception. Okay? Christians are the exception. And then he says, But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Now, wisdom is often personified in Scripture as a woman. I think that's pretty cool, women, ladies. You like that? You're, you know, when, we, when Jesus and the Bible describes wisdom, the Bible calls wisdom her, she. Isn't that awesome? And I don't think she's just identifying. I think that's just what she's like. So there you go. I love it. Now, um, but wisdom is proved right, how? By the fruit, by the evidence, by the results, by her deeds. Okay? Verse 20. Now we're going to change to another portrait. And these next three come really fast. So the next one, so that was promised Messiah. Number two is authoritative judge. One of the things that John the Baptist was looking for from Jesus that he wasn't seeing yet was that Jesus was going to judge people. Now Jesus is absolutely justified in judging because he is holy and he knows what's right and wrong and he has no problem distinguishing between the two or being faithful to one and excluding the other. Okay, but John hadn't heard him preaching against the rulers. He hadn't heard him preaching against the religious leaders yet. Okay, well, hang on. Here it comes. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns. Now, remember, a town isn't a town is just the people. It's a sum of the people. The towns in which most of his miracles had been performed, because here's the reason they did not repent. So, out of all the places Jesus went to do miracles, including Jerusalem. There were three towns that he did the most miracles in, 
And he's going to start with two of them, and then he's going to go to the third where he did the most miracles. And in every case where the results should have been repentance and faith in Jesus, they didn't. By and large, they didn't. There were exceptions. Watch this. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes publicly. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Tyre and Sidon weren't even Jewish towns. They weren't even God's people. They were Gentiles on the coast of the Mediterranean that already had been judged by God once and then built back up. And he says, even those wicked towns would have repented if they had seen what you got to see in my healings and in my casting out demons and in my miracles of of healing the blind and the lame and raising the dead. They would have believed when I preached the gospel. And then he goes for the jugular, verse 23, and you, Capernaum, remember Capernaum? That's his base of operations in Galilee. That's where Jesus bases his ministry. That's where he does his first Oh, not his first miracle, but most of his miracles. Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? In other words, are you all that in a bag of chips? I mean, you think you are, but are you? No. You will go down to Hades, the place of death. For if the miracles that were performed in you in that city had been performed in Sodom, hello, Sodom and Gomorrah, it would have remained Sodom would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. If you remember maybe possibly back in Genesis in the days of Abraham when God obliterated Sodom and Gomorrah, the two cities that were super wicked. So wicked. The only righteous people there were Lot and maybe his daughters and maybe his wife. You know, those are even debatable in cities of hundreds of thousands of people. And so God wipes out those cities. They're so wicked. Okay. And Jesus is saying, if they had heard or seen these miracles and heard the message, they would have repented too. Now, they're going to be there. They're going to be judged. But this tells me there are levels of judgment in hell, even as there are levels of rewards in heaven. It matters how you live here and now. Okay. I'm not looking to be the best level in hell. Okay. I'll take the least level in heaven over the best level in hell. Okay. It's, it's not close. And and, and in a lot of ways, those levels don't mean a whole lot. The difference the Bible says between heaven and hell is life and death. Even though your soul lives forever in both places, it's the contrast is life versus being dead. So when I say levels, I mean, context, right? Verse 25 gives us another picture. That was authoritative judge. Now we get sovereign son. Okay, let me define the word sovereign a little bit for us because in, um, in, in religious circles and churches today, this is very controversial. It's being used in different ways. So the best way I can um, describe it is this. Okay, so um, a sovereign is like a king or an emperor or a pharaoh or um, you know, just a king or a queen, a monarch, if you will. Okay, um, they are the top ruler in that land. Okay, they have all the they have ultimate authority in that land. Okay, and they have because of that authority, they have access to the power that is needed to enforce whatever it is they want. And if they have a strong rule, then they have strong authority and power. 
Okay. While they have authority over all of that land and they can control some of the things that happen, they can't control everything because they don't have that power. Okay. That is similar to God, who is the ultimate authority over all things. Matthew makes it clear, all authority. Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go in the Great Commission. God has all authority. And we know because he's omnipotent, he has all power. So unlike an earthly ruler, he could control everything. And I would even go as far as to say is if he did control everything and he chose to do it that way, I'm, that doesn't change who he is in my eyes. I don't think that he controls everything, even though he could. He has the power to do that. He has the authority to do that. Because I think he's made room for me to choose or resist him. Okay? Now, that's controversial because we have different people that have different takes on that and what that means and how that plays out. Okay? All right? And that doesn't mean we can't do the Great Commission together, right? But it's blurry when those two, where those two come together for me. I'll just say it that way. For me, sovereignty of God is all over the Scriptures human responsibility and our ability to trust him or not is also all over scriptures. And when, it try, when I try to put them together, I have a hard time being able to describe to either side how that works. And so here's how I handle it. This is just how Darren handles it, okay? This isn't right or wrong. This is just how I do. I'm just, I believe he is sovereign and in control as, as much as he wants to be. And I believe that he has given me room to accept or reject him. And that the only way I can accept him is when he makes it possible for me to. Okay? But I still have free... Without compromising my my freedom. Okay? So that's my... So that's it in a nutshell. He's, he uses some sovereign language here when he says choose, and I'm just trying to prepare us for that because it's in the Scriptures, and we're going to read it, and we're going to believe it. But we need to understand it in context, and sometimes we're not going to understand it all, and that's okay. It doesn't mean we'll never understand it necessarily. Okay, so at that time, this is where we are now, sovereign son. Jesus, is, that's one of his portraits. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things, things he's been talking about, from the wise, that is people who think they've got it all figured out. Anybody that comes to you and has God all figured out, you need to run, okay? Because how do you figure out someone who can speak the universe into creation with a word? I'm sorry, but I'm running from you if you've got that figured out. From the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Childlike faith. This is not the childishness we saw earlier. This is childlike faith that Jesus holds up in exemplary fashion, okay? Yes, Father... It's like he's just praying. He's just talking to his dad. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. And that's what matters, is what is God pleased by? And we know in, in, in uh, Hebrews eleven six that it is impossible to please God without faith. So we know faith is a key ingredient in all of this. And we see that in the Old Testament in Abraham. We see that in the New Testament all over the place, right? Then he says this to complete this portrait. All things have been committed to me by my Father. So you see, Jesus has different roles than the Father. He's interacting with the Father as an equal and yet subordinate. In other words, he is equal to God in essence, but he is a different role, which doesn't make him any less God. It just makes him have a different role. 
Anita and I are equal. We are equal in value. We are equal in our personhood. We have different roles, okay? And that's just the way God makes it, all right? Um, And he says, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. You see that? The Son is sovereign and can choose. Now, I don't know how much of that has to do with salvation and how much of that has to do with sanctification. I have a feeling it's not as neat as I'd like to make it. And so I'm not making a summary statement about that. You've got to figure that out. That's part of us all figuring out our faith, okay? And even if you tell me and we disagree, I I love you, and I am not going to let that sever our relationship, okay? This is, Jesus prayed for unity. He didn't pray for perfect theology, okay? He wants it. All right, so now we get the last portrait, and the last portrait is my favorite, okay? I think we're there. Let's see. Yes, okay? The last portrait is gracious son, gracious son. We call this Grace Christian Fellowship not because of any preconceived theological position, but because we love grace and we want to be a culture of grace. One definition of grace is the acronym G-R-A-C-E, getting uh, God's riches at Christ's expense. Okay? That one's pretty good. I like getting what you don't deserve. Okay? So like when I wrong you or say something you don't like and you, you respond to me with, Kindness, that's grace. I don't deserve that, but that's, that's grace. That's just one of a gazillion examples of what grace is. And that is the kind of culture I believe that God wants to nurture in every church, but I especially want to see that here. This is why we can agree to disagree on things and still love and serve alongside of each other and be in unity because we're not going to be unanimity. We're not going to be uniform, and I don't want to be uniform. I don't want to look like an army in uniform. I love the diversity I see outwardly and inwardly in our fellowship. And I think that strengthens us. It's one of the advantages of being non-denominational is you get a greater diversity of theological backgrounds. And to me, that's a win because those different denominations occurred because something was being ignored that needed to be kept. And so they believed so strongly, they went and started another church and then eventually became a denomination. You know, we can poo-poo denominations all we want, okay? But they're just an expression of the local church organized and um, uh, maybe even aligned in similar ways. They're kind of like tribes, okay? As long as we're not in one tribe throwing rocks at another tribe... I'm okay with that. Okay, Now, we're not really in any of those tribes, which some people have said, if you're non-denominational, then you're in a denomination called non-denominational. I'm like, no, it's not quite like that. We don't, we don't uh, automatically look at each other and go, yeah, we're together, because we're usually not. Okay, And that's, part of that is that the desire of a local church to be autonomous, which is a good thing. Okay, But that doesn't mean we operate as if there are no other churches in the city. We help them, and we work together even though we're different. Illuminate Church is Wesleyan Church. Somerville Baptist Church is Baptist. Restoration Church, too. Our church is non-denominational. And yet we can do things together in the name of Jesus as part of the Church of Charleston. And that's a good thing. And this is why we help them and pray for them, and they pray and help us, because we are better together, even though we don't always agree on everything. Okay. Now, there are obviously gaps that get too big, all right? And you have to use discernment and figure that out. And that's, that's sometimes a challenge. And sometimes we, we partner and then we learn the hard way that maybe that wasn't a great idea in hindsight. 
And then we learn and we grow and we move on. Gracious son, this is what he says to me. And this gets at the heart of what we're about today. Answering the question, how do I deal with fear? How do I deal with doubt? And how do I deal with burdens? And Jesus says it this way. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Okay? This is not egg yolk. Okay, just so that you're hungry and your stomach's growling. It's like, no, we're not there yet. Hang in there. But a yoke was a device that was used to build what they used for their John Deere tractor, okay? And I don't think they were green and yellow, but they had this wooden bar that would go across the top of the neck of two animals, usually oxen or donkeys or whatever they had, whatever they could afford. And then there was two loops that would go under the neck of each animal, okay? So you have a bar. And you have like a U and a U, and their heads are through there. And what you did, what you were doing was, you were, let's say you had one ox, and you said, "I need another ox. I need more horsepower. I need more ox power." Okay, um, I'm upgrading. And so, because uh, that's how they plowed the fields, they'd hook a plow to the back or a wagon or whatever they needed to move. And so, to get the second one, they're like, "Okay, so I'm going to buy a cheaper ox, which means he's probably smaller, younger." but he's going to grow big and you know, I'm going to feed him and it's going to be great, right? And so they get the younger ox up next to the big ox, okay? The big, old, experienced ox that knows the commands of his master, okay? Lash them together using the, the yoke. And then it's like the, the master says the command and the big ox, he says, go. The big ox starts to go. And the little ox goes, whoa, I guess we're going. And off they go. And then the master says, Turn left, and the ox starts to turn left, and the little ones go, oh, I guess we're turning. And that keeps happening over and over. And eventually, depending on how smart the ox is, you've heard the expression dumb ox. I'm not sure where this fits in. But anyway, this smart ox is going to figure it out. Oh, he's doing what he says to do. Maybe if I do this, do that, it won't hurt so bad, and I won't fall over so often. And discipline takes over. Training occurs. Right? That's what discipleship's like. Okay? We yoke to one another, but I, ultimately we yoke, to Je- we, yoke to oak. we yoke to Jesus. Okay? This is one of the reasons, sidebar, no extra charge for this, this is why the Bible says to couples, do not be unequally yoked. That's a spiritual thing. Don't have a believer and a non-believer trying to justify a marriage. Okay? Because you're going to act like the big and the small ox and you're not even going to want to go in the same direction. That's a disaster waiting to happen. Okay? All right? And so that, but that's, that's not here. So, this is, so come to me. So I want, you to, I want to paint a picture for you here that I think helps this, this come home. All right? And I'm going to use a, a scene from my childhood. I'm, and, and then at some point the details will, will not matter and it won't be exactly. But um, our, my grandparents, my dad's parents lived and grew up in Catawba County, North Carolina, right near Lake Norman, what's now Lake Norman, in Sherrill's Ford, North Carolina, a little tiny uh, place. If you know where it is, I'm impressed. Okay, so they grew up there, and every summer we would go up for a weekend or a week or part of our vacation to visit Grandpa and Grandma, okay? And one of the things we would do almost every summer would be we'd eat watermelon late in the day, and we were always outside because they didn't have A.C., and it was cooler outside in the 90-degree afternoon than it was inside. So we'd eat our watermelon outside, and we'd play, and the cousins, you know, cousins would come, and we'd play together. And then it, it, dusk would come, and the lightning bugs would come out, 
We catch those and put them in a jar and punch holes in the top and in the morning see them all dead at the bottom. Yeah, we did all that. Now, now this is where it quits being autobiographical. And it's just imagine with me that one of the cousins, you know, they run into another cousin and one of them bounces off and runs away and the other cousin just starts bawling. Okay, you can imagine this, right, if you have kids or seen this. And, and, the, and the child is just so devastated. It's not just the pain from the collision, but it's like they did that on purpose and they're crying so much snot's running down their face. And you know how a child, when they're like that, they're so upset that they're just paralyzed. They won't move. They're just standing there wailing. Okay, got the picture? Okay, now everybody else is sitting in a circle of lawn chairs eating watermelon. And they see and they watch this happen. They see this happen. They know. And mom, probably, dad usually just lets mom do it, right? I don't have time for that. And then um, so she sees this and she knows. She knows what's happening here. She can tell he's hurt, but not really. He's upset. And this isn't going to end well if I don't intervene. And so this is what mama says. Come here. Now, I said it that way on purpose because there's two emotions running through there. One is compassion. I want to comfort my child. And one is, that ain't happening unless you come over here. And so I went and looked it up. The word come to me is not just an invitation. It is a command. It's an imperative. So Jesus is saying, come here. He's not asking just to invite you. He's talking to you, those of you who are yoked with him, when you are hurt, when you are afraid, when you are burdened, when you doubt, and he says, come here, because he compassionately loves you and because he knows that you're not going to find relief unless you come to him. You see it? You see why the both matter? We don't like people commanding us. We don't like his authority when he uses it on us. But it is tempered with compassion. And you've got to see that. or You'll not ever yield. And there's great wisdom in that yielding. And we already know what he said about wisdom. She's good. Wisdom is good. And she proves it by the outcomes. And so the child eventually realizes and, and breaks through the par- and walks to mom and crawls up in her lap and she hugs and wipes away the snot and all the tears and eventually he bounces down and goes and plays again, right? Because she was there and that's what he needed, okay? She was Jesus for him and that's wisdom because that, and that's this kind of wisdom. So when you look at these portraits, the promised Messiah, the authoritative judge, the sovereign son, and the gracious son... You should be able to find the answer to how do I deal with my fears, doubts, and burdens in life. Because they're not going to quit coming until he gets back. He's coming back. That whole judgment thing, it's coming. And I want you to be on the right side of that. That's why every time Matthew says, Jesus says, come, I want you to hear me say it. Because it's in the scripture, that's an imperative. He is commanding you to come. And his people will obey, and those who are not will not. And wisdom will show the results. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Okay, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands how many of you are tired today. Okay, you, you shouldn't be. you got an extra hour of sleep in theory, right? But if you're like me, you didn't sleep an hour longer. 
It just didn't happen because your body is not on that clock thing. Some of you are tired because you're working so hard. You're burning the candle at both ends. You're trying to do too much, and you're not taking care of yourself. Okay, that's physical things you can do. The whole principle of a Sabbath is a rhythm of rest. One day a week where I'm not earning anything. I'm just refueling. Okay? A daily time alone with the Lord is a way to do that Sabbath daily. And vacations, they're helpful, but they're not what's going to get you through long term. A vacation doesn't happen enough. It needs to be part of your regular rhythm. That's why he gave us Sabbath one out of seven days. Okay? It's a physical rhythm. It's a spiritual rhythm. And it helps you with the emotional and mental and relational junk that you have that brings you to a place where you truly rest. Not just, I'm resting from running hard. I'm taking a break. It's, no, no, I'm refueling and refreshing. Jesus, when he got rest, he would leave. He would retreat. And that, I know people don't like that. We don't retreat, we advance. You know, let's do our staff advance. It sounds so ridiculous. There's good wisdom in retreating from the battle. Okay? That's where you, you take care of your wounds. And you acknowledge that it hurts to be a Christian in this world. A lot. And we have burdens and doubts and fears because of it. So we retreat. We pull back. We do that personally as an individual. We do that as family. Dads, are you making sure that's happening? Moms, are you holding him accountable? We do that as a church. We have rhythms where we're times where we're busier and times when we're less busy as a church on our calendar. This is important. But that isn't going to make a difference if you don't come to Jesus. He is the source of the true rest that can only come to God, to come to us from God. It happens through his son Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I lift up those in the room right now who are fearful of their circumstances right now. I pray that you would help them remember that you say at least 365 times in your word, don't be afraid, for I'm with you. Lord, I pray for those in the room that are doubting something about you, something about your church, something maybe about this church. I lift them up to you, and I pray that you would help them wrestle with those doubts honestly, believing that you are God of grace and mercy, and you will carry them through those doubts so that they come out stronger in their faith as a result. And I pray for those who are burdened today, physically burdened with a physical condition that it feels like not another day can I take it. Lord, I pray for grace and comfort and healing physically. Lord, a lot of times you use this stuff in our lives for a greater blessing, and that is the spiritual lifting of burden that can come especially through unforgiveness. When we hang on and we do not forgive. Now, it's not possible for the Christian to do that very long. But it is there, and it is a temptation that we must deal with. Help us to forgive others as we have been forgiven by you. Let me latch onto that and get that. And may we find relief 
Because you tell us the burden is, is light. Your yoke is easy. It's not invisible. It's not that it's not there. It's easy and light. It's still there. We're still a part of being yoked to you. But the way you handle it is a blessing to us. When we cooperate, when we see that you're the master and we're the servant that is becoming the friend, the brother, the sister, the joint heir. And so, Lord, I pray that you would awaken us to the reality. Lord, that you bring us when we trust and rest in you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So that's the answer to the question. How do we overcome those three things? By trusting and resting in the Lord Jesus Christ.